Welcome back to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. It's the NIL Hour, very active week in the world of sports law. And as you know, college sports never sleeps. My name is Taryn Sharma. I'm here joined today by Mike Lawson. How's it going, Mike? Taryn, good to be back. Another NIL Hour, another week. Yeah. Holly, how's it going? Doing well. How are you? We have a special guest today, Sam Green. Sam, you're really like boots on the ground working with student athletes as they take advantage of their NIL rights. I am. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, really exciting. And we'll also be talking uh, in the latter half of the show about the Northwestern lawsuits that have been filed uh, stemming from the hazing allegations. And uh, and finally, maybe a federal NIL law. We'll break that down in the latter half of the show. But let's get started here. Holly, you were able to get Sam on our show. How do you guys know each other? And why don't you tell us a, a little bit about her? Yeah, I'd love to. So my first interaction with Sam, I feel like I've said multiple times uh, in the past with some of my connections, stemmed from the NIL Summit back at the beginning of June um, in Atlanta, which was just a really great place, I think, for everybody interested in the NIL space and involved in the NIL space to really get to know each other and kind of network and connect with people who are of like mind. So that my first interaction with Sam I kind of was on the back end of all the NIL Summit stuff working in the background, but I definitely know that Sam was on the ground running the entire time making connections. So I thought she would be perfect to have on the show, maybe kind of give us a new angle because Sam is the go-to content creator for athletes. And so I think it would be great for her to kind of just tell us a little bit and tell the listeners a little bit about what she does and kind of her angle on the NIL space. Sam, would you give us a little background? Absolutely. So I danced in college and I danced in the MBA and I unfortunately didn't have the opportunity that these student athletes really do with NIL. Right after college, I went on to become a video editor at ESPN, and my worlds just kind of collided when NIL passed. So I just know the opportunity that they have in front of them, and I wanted them to be able to optimize it. But I really saw a gap in the actual education of athletes knowing what to even do and how to even get started. So a lot of people talk to athletes and say, NIL is about building your brand. Build your brand now while you have it. You have fans in front of you. But how? No one's teaching that how. So I actually ditched all the expensive software that I learned at ESPN and I dedicated six months to learn everything from my phone. And now I teach athletes how to actually create the content. Over 70% of NIL deals are based around brands paying athletes to create that content. That's really the missing link that I've tried to tap into. Yeah, that's awesome. I know that one of the things that we were definitely interested in hearing about was your background in sports and kind of how it gives you maybe more of a deeper understanding into what these athletes are like going through as they are student athletes. And then maybe even more now of how they're working in the NIL space and how maybe it just adds a lot of responsibility to them. Yeah. So I think what really makes me relatable from my experience as an athlete, especially a student athlete, is just understanding the time and energy that it takes just to be them, just to show up every day as a student and to show up as an athlete is plenty. It's enough. I was so tired every single day trying to balance all of these things. And now I can't even imagine the responsibility of adding on NIL and trying to create content and grow an entire brand while just, you know, trying to make it through. So I think that relatability piece is really beneficial for me because I'm able to take a realistic approach, meet these athletes where they are, I have a lot of tips and tricks that speeds up the process for them. I'm not sitting there expecting them 
to add this on like another whole coursework or more homework or another project. I really try and dumb things down and make it as simple as possible. So I think that's really beneficial. For the student athletes that you work with, uh, what do you find that maybe don't grasp about the space at this point? And what is the gap between what they're being told by the athletic departments and then the opportunities that they have? I think that the biggest gap is them realizing it's not just a one and done type of situation. Athletes will create a piece of content, land a deal, and they'll get pissed or upset when it doesn't go viral or when the car dealership says no to them when that was their very first brand pitch and they have one post on their So I think the long game is what they're kind of missing. If I'm coming in as a freshman, I want to start thinking longevity. I want to think about building this brand over the next four years, not getting so caught up in the moment of my first NIL deal, how much cash it's going to be and how many views I'm going to get. So I think there's a big gap in being slow and steady because slow and steady I've noticed has wins, wins the race. It's not one athlete that posts five times a week for one month straight that's landing all the deals. It's the athlete that's posting one acts two times a week over the course of two, three, four years that are really winning. And I think that the gap at the university level is just this space is so new. So universities didn't even know how to resource athletes at first because nobody knew what we were doing. It was just a brand new space that had never happened before. So I think now what we're seeing the gap in is truly, I've said it, you know, earlier in this segment, but the how, like now universities have to wake up and realize, crap, like these kids are and trying to build a brand and it's a digital age and maybe the universities don't even know how to attack the digital space and that's where nil is really going to that's where the bread and butter is so i think the gap is resourcing the athletes in how to actually tackle this digital media age stemming from what you were just saying one thing that we have seen a little bit more in the last year so clemson built a center that's specifically for nil alabama i know has one is that something that you would like to see more of Oh yeah. I'm so in on that. And a lot of people are saying it's controversial. A lot of people are like, where's the ROI? We're not seeing it. A lot of athletes aren't really buying into their brand. And to me, like, this is just a start. This is the long game. These universities that already have these facilities set up, people are so in the now right now. Let's think about this YouTube generation that's coming up that literally has been sitting in their high chair watching YouTube since they were born because they've just been around technology. This is the long game with NIL. This is the future of NIL. I think every single university is going to have one of these. I think it's just a matter of time. But these schools, Clemson, Alabama, they're just the precedent. They're setting the stage for what's really to come with NIL. I had a similar question of how open, you know, I, I, I know you, you said you do some work with schools, communicating with schools, educate. I mean, athletes, it's great. I, I mean, we, we all, we, we, constantly talk about athlete advocacy and educating athletes because a lot of them don't know where to start, what to do, what, to, you know, a lot of them grew up with a phone in their hands and they know how to use social media, but using their name, image, and likeness to all of its benefits. But in terms of schools, you know, I, I see that you do some, you know, workshops for schools, you know, how open are schools to approach you to, you know, use your services, or if you pitch it to them saying, here's what I can do for your athletes, how open are they to allowing you to come, allowing you to talk about your experience and educating their students on that end? Um, I'm going to knock on wood. The response has been incredible. I just think that everybody's willing to really help their athletes and these universities are they're starting to wake up to where their gap is and realize that I am filling that. And so I really applaud these universities to the level of open-mindedness they have to really benefit their student athletes. I've, yeah, I've had a great response. I've really been blessed through the whole process. 
And on the earlier end, are you working with any high school athletes? Well, you know, it gets a little tricky just with state by state, it being a little bit differently. So if the rules and regulations are right in the state and the parent approaches me, yes, I do. But but as far as like a broader level, I have not tapped into that yet. How do you go about meeting student athletes? Are you waiting for them to approach you or are you like scouting? So luckily I've been in the industry the entire time since NIL has launched. I actually spent a year and a half in a marketplace where I held an educational role. I was able to build out an online educational program, travel to universities and really get to know them. I ran my own little content creator crew. So I think it's a lot of athletes reaching out to me and I've just kind of built out a network over, you know, the past two years that it's uh, existed. So a little bit of a combination, but I'd say my tightest connections come from when I get to actually meet the athletes in person and, you know, roll up my sleeves and get to do the kind of dirty grunt work with them. Like those are the connections that last forever. And I literally consider some of these athletes, my friends. So, yeah, that's awesome. I really kind of noticed that, especially at the summit, just all the people were coming up talking to you hugging you like being like I'm so glad you're here like so good to see you again so that was really awesome I kind of have a little bit of a future casting question for you a lot of what we've talked about in the past on this show is about whether or not athletes should and will be considered employees of their universities or employees of the NCA one day do you think that that would change how they how student athletes market themselves or how they use social media or what, what does that look like for you? And what do you think it looks like for student athletes? I think that it would honestly change the entire landscape as we currently know it. My biggest fear would be the regulation that would come with it. Right now, student athletes are free agents, so to speak. They really have a lot of freedom and control to say yes and no to whatever the heck they want in relation to their name, image, and likeness. So my biggest fear would be that they would lose that freedom, but I'm not going to slam this idea altogether because there would be a lot of benefits in the university really taking over a lot of the grunt work day to day that stress student athletes out. I just personally, I think it's too soon. I think, you know, this is the third year. Let's get some case studies. Let's see where this industry is going and then come talk to me in like year five about that. I just, I would hate to pivot that big, make that big of a pivot this early on. I'm curious on the collective side too. I can see from from your your website, you, you do the, kind of the same thing that you do for schools for collectives. Are you kind of the conduit also between schools and collectives at the same time? Because now, again, we talk about state regulations, whether or not schools are allowed to be involved in communicating mm-hmm. with collectives. Now, here you are as kind of a advisor role. Do you have issues, maybe, or do you feel conflicted out where you're dealing with a collective and then dealing with a school, or do or do you feel comfortable being a conduit where, hey, this is what the collective is doing, this is what the school needs, and vice versa? I would actually say that there's a lot of synergy between the universities and the collectives, maybe even a little bit more than what an outsider would expect. So when I talk to people at the university or collective level, it's pretty clear very early on who I should go through. So a lot of universities are like, hey, these are the kind of things that we go through the collective and the university helps me go through the entire process with the collective or vice versa. If I know a collective and everything is dealt through the university, I go through them. So a lot of synergy, actually more than what you would. You have a really strong background in this academically also. Uh, you mentioned on your website the Master's in Media Psychology. That's a pretty unique program, it sounds like. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the, the studies that you did? 
I did a lot of research wanting to kind of differentiate myself within this space to be able to back up what I do by my education. So the master's in media psychology is the only degree of its kind. It's a fielding graduate university of Santa Barbara. So I actually took three years to do the program because I really wanted to take it seriously and be able to do this right. And so the coolest thing that I was able to do out of it was my final project. I conducted the first ever NIL study. As far as I know, it was a neuromarketing eye tracking study where I studied the differences between user generated and professionally produced content uh, in NIL advertisements. And I was actually able to find like a $50 advertisement of an athlete eating a protein bar and just talking about it outperformed like a, I think it was like a 30 or $50,000 production from Buick. So definitely well-versed. And again, to your point, everything that I do is really backed by my education. And that was, it was super important to me that if I'm going at the university level or even the collective level to teach these athletes that, you know, I want to really be able to have as much backing as I can. That's awesome. Can you tell us what exactly makes a $50 video more powerful than like the professionally produced $22,000 video? Like what exactly is it that differentiates it? Yeah, it's really the relatability piece. People say it a lot, but people don't really know why. And it's because when people are watching something, they really want to be able to relate to you and relate to your audience. And so the $50 ad was an athlete genuinely giving his opinion. It was his first time ever trying the protein bar. And we felt the audience felt like we got an inside scoop of, oh my gosh, what's it actually going to taste like? And something that it actually tapped into was the five senses. Like it, people kind of overlook that, right? Like we want to hear the taste, the smell, and really be able to understand and grasp like we're eating the protein bar. And the athlete did that pretty well. And he also gave it to his roommate to try on screen as well. So we got to see two people trying it and kind of really tap into just an authentic piece of content. Yeah, that's really, really cool. That that was the thing on your website that really stood out to me. It's just awesome when you can actually like pair what you're saying with with the data behind it. And to your point, I don't know that I've heard of any other NIL studies that have been done yet. So that's really cool. Thanks. I'm glad you haven't. <laughs> you kind of mentioned this when Taryn asked about it before, about like the main areas that you're probably teaching some of these students or schools or collectives, or whatever. What do you find is the most difficult aspect of this when you're going through the process, whether you're dealing with a collective, dealing with a school, dealing with an athlete, maybe dealing with a brand, I don't know. What do you find is the most difficult piece of this as you go through and if, like you said, you've been in it since the beginning of NIL? I think the hardest part is actually the initial part. When these athletes first walk into the room, they think maybe they have to be there. Maybe their coach made them go there. So they're under the assumption that this is going to be another boring PowerPoint presentation that's irrelevant to me. And I'm not really going to be able to grasp anything. I got up at 8 a.m. for this. This was my off day. I have classes, you know, tomorrow at 8 a.m. I have tests. I have this, I have that. And so the initial like perception that they may have of what I'm doing may be boring. And then they come in and they quickly realize like, whoa, whoa, like, I don't know how to do this. This could actually help me if I actually buy into this. I could set myself up and build something that's going to outlive my playing career. So I think the initial buy-in and kind of switching their perspective that like, hey, like sit back, chill out. Like we're going to have some fun this next, you know, two hours or however long it is, is really where the biggest shift is. That's actually also interesting to hear about, you know, students stepping into the room for the first time and hearing it, especially given the fact that this generation is very much in tune with social media and, and name, image, and likeness in general. Do athletes have either the incentive that they think that, like, I can be worth something as a college athlete, I want to take 
as much benefits from this name, image, and likeness that I can, or the inverse where they're almost intimidated by NIL, where they didn't really think that they're worth that much and didn't know if they could actually tap into it until they speak with you. I think that it's a mixed bag, just as anything is. I think a lot of athletes maybe are naturally in tuned a little bit more. Maybe they've already started editing and they know like, hey, I already kind of have a grasp on it. But the majority of your athletes, they have no idea how to edit a video before they come and see me. And so that intimidation level is a lot higher. And then my whole thing is just making them feel comfortable that they can do this. And a lot of people assume you have to be that D1 football player to tap into it. And if we really break the numbers down, you know, some of these athletes that are succeeding and making the most money in this industry are the ones that are hustling and know how to make the best content. So I definitely think there's an intimidation factor to start. I kind of have a little bit of a follow-up question to that about maybe for student athletes who maybe don't have the luxury of having you come to speak with them or their school doesn't really provide support. The collective doesn't really provide support. What is like a good starting point for athletes who are coming in? Like, I want to profit off my NIL. I don't know what to do. What would you say is like step one? I'd say step one is following other people that are doing it. There's athletes that put out educational content themselves. There's athletes that are putting out the trending audios, the transitions. They're talking about the products and the brand deals that they're doing. Follow these athletes that are already doing it and just take their steps and do it right back. So there's SMU volleyball player, Alex Glover, who in her highlight cover on Instagram shows all of her PR deals and tags every single one of the brands. You can go into her highlight cover, go and reach and like follow all of the accounts that she's posting and reach out to all of those brands just to get started. So I also think following educational accounts of content creators, there's people are out there like me that are teaching editing, they're doing these transitions, they're teaching you step-by-step step how to build your brand. It's easier than what you think. You just have to do a little bit of the homework. You have to follow these people. You have to turn on your notifications so you get notified when they post so that you're not missing the latest social media update. You know, there's YouTube accounts. It's really just educating yourself, but it's time consuming. Right now, as we're still kind of in the early stages, we, we call it wild, wild west of, of name, image, and likeness. Are you finding brand satisfaction to be pretty high right now? Uh, are, are they happy with these deals? Are you know, you know, I, my thought is we're still in the early stages, so everybody's kind of eager to jump in, and then it might teeter out as you see some major brand deals go moving forward. But how are you seeing the brands in terms of their satisfaction, their eagerness to jump in, or maybe their expectations are pretty high? I, I don't know, but but I, I'm curious your thoughts. I think the brands that see the most success are actually the brands that are willing to cast out a bigger net. So the ones that are signing numerous athletes. They're getting different styles of content. They're seeing who they want to work with, who's eager to work with them, who's getting the engagement on their posts are the ones seeing the success. And they're also the ones that are patient with the athlete and understand that these athletes have classes, they have games, they, you know, they have a lot to do. So their content, if it's going to be good, maybe a two week turnaround, not 24 hours, like other brands are expecting and the brands that are relatable and actually meeting the athletes where they're at are the ones that are really, you know, benefiting from this and they continue to invest in it because they're really building long-term relationships with these athletes. So they're seeing more out of it. And I think the brands that also do a lot of deep dive into who the athletes are, not just casting out this wide net and allowing anybody to partner, but really partnering with the athletes that align with their brand and their mission. And, you know, they maybe post like-minded content are the ones that are succeeding, but I would say it's definitely not hundred percent success or happiness rate. What would you like to see in the next 
year or so change in the space? Is there something that you would like to see in terms of improvements? I mean, it may seem silly coming from me, but the education on the content, I mean, these athletes should all know how to edit a video and how it can be so simple and it doesn't have to take hours. I just hate that there's so many athletes out there thinking that this is unachievable when it's really not. You mentioned that a lot of people reach out to you. So if anyone who's listening to this wants to reach out to you, how can they go about doing that? Easiest way would be on Instagram, Sam B. Green. Um, DM me. I'm really good at answering. You can always visit my website and stuff like that, but I know athletes don't want long URL. My URL is NIL with Sam Green. You can also hit me up from there, but uh, always, always down to hit you back in the DMs. No more content from sports with DJ Sammy G. <laughs> no, you know, if I am in Charlotte, if they would like to have me back to host a little radio station segment, you know, I would bring the sports with DJ Sammy G back out. <laughs> <laughs> never say never. Thanks so yep. much, Sam. Thank yeah, you guys. Thank you. It was awesome having you. Great insight. Of course. Have a good one, guys. Thanks. Thanks again to Sam Green for joining us. Again, you can find her online at nilwithsamgreen.com and at it was Sam B. Green on Instagram. So that was awesome. It was really cool to talk to somebody who's in that space. Holly, thanks again for getting another great guest two weeks in a row. We really appreciate that. As always, that interview, this episode brought to you by Themis, Themis Bar Review, best bar review in the galaxy. And here's a word from our host at Spotify. So gang, Big week in NIL again, the Northwestern football case, which we've been tracking, there were developments in that. Obviously, the last time we discussed Pat Fitzgerald being fired and and all that went into that. Now we have three groups of players coming forward saying that they're going to file. Two have already filed, including a 15 student athletes, former student athletes, including one female student athlete. And that group is represented by well-known civil rights lawyer, Benjamin Crump. The other two are separate, but I was wondering, Holly, could you take us through the allegations and what the response has been so far? Yeah. So basically what we talked about last week being the hazing allegations and some of the sexual, physical, emotional abuse that was normalized or allegedly normalized by the Northwestern football program, including the head coach, Pat Fitzgerald. After he was fired last week, a lot of students, maybe not a lot, 15 former students, like you said, kind of came together and filed a lawsuit. Um, They have It's against Northwestern, um, some of the top university officials, the former head coach, Patrick Fitzgerald, and then also recently added, I think on Wednesday was Jim Phillips, the ACC commissioner. He was added as a defendant in this most recent lawsuit that was filed just because he was the athletic director at Northwestern when the majority of the hazing took place. So these students are basically former players from about 2015 to 2022, I think, that are coming in and saying we all experienced some of the same stuff that has been brought forward. We're obviously not okay with it. We're going to speak up about it. And they filed this lawsuit. They have filed it anonymously, except for Lloyd Yates. He was a quarterback and the wide receiver from about 2015, 2017. And he was kind of one of the bigger spokespeople this past week saying It was basically normalized across the board. The coaches knew about it. The coaching 
staff knew about it, the maybe even some of the athletic administration knew about it and kind of didn't really obviously do anything about it is what he's alleging. And in order to get playing time, they had to basically put up with a lot of this abuse that they went through. I think a lot of the current like response to the lawsuits being filed is more of like an understanding I think like it was expected that some students would come forward and file a lawsuit we kind of all thinking what happened just didn't know when um, and it seems like more lawsuits may be filed I think there was a third one that was expected to be filed today but I don't think it was announced whether or not it actually was but in regards to like Northwestern's response and Pat Fitzgerald's lawyer's response, it seems to be that they are still denying that they had any knowledge of the alleged hazing that was going on. Um, they're kind of continuously denying any involvement. And so I'm interested to see kind of where the lawsuit takes us, getting kind of more information and getting hopefully down to what really happened. This was something that we expected to see, given everything that happened so rapidly after the report came out, the two-week suspension that turned into a you know termination. You know, we talked about potential lawsuits for Fitzgerald for the termination, but also at the same time, the lawsuits coming from the players who suffered the abuse. So, uh, definitely going to develop more. I mean, we might see more lawsuits pop up. Who knows if this turns into some sort of mass tort class action? Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, it would be it would be interesting to follow. Yeah, well, if all of the claims of the three groups are typical, I wouldn't be surprised if if that's something that we see with uh, with with Yates being the uh, the individual that is the class representative. So we'll keep tracking that. It's just such a strange situation where you have like these divided camps. Obviously the student athletes anonymously filing in addition to Yates. And then you have the others kind of coming forward and saying like, you know, that either didn't exist, it didn't happen, or it was like, I don't understand why anyone is surprised basically is the tone that I get from some of these comments. The athletic did a really long article uh, that I recommend, but the the funny quote that everyone ran with from that is that it was (laughs) Rico Lamit, who uh, played receiver and safety at Northwestern from 2001 to 2005, he said about the uh, Camp Kenosha rituals or hazing, whatever it was, the alleged, he said it was weirdo fat guys on the team doing weirdo fat guy. And when another anonymous player said, when you take a team offsite to a camp with no interaction, no women is going to get weird. So some people don't think it was a big deal, I guess, uh, who were in the program, obviously, because they never came forward. Other pe- people were, maybe they got it harder than others. Um, this seems a little bit disconnected from what was going on with the stuff that was going on, like the Shreks list and the runs miss and all of that stuff, because I, I thought that that was more coach directed. This seems like it's weird rituals that the upperclassmen were doing to the underclassmen all of it unacceptable. And despite all that, Pat Fitzgerald says that he had no knowledge of that, which is, you know, different than 
just saying like, yeah, it wasn't that big a deal, right? Saying I had no knowledge of it. That just means that if somebody comes forward or multiple people come forward and uh, testify to you having knowledge of it, that puts you in a really tough spot as far as defense goes, I think. Uh, Holly? Yeah, one of the things that I read about Yates saying is that they, when they entered in as freshmen and they started on the Northwestern football team, maybe they felt honored to be there. They were excited to be playing college football. And once this kind of behavior started, they felt like they didn't have a reference point. Like, was this something that was experienced across all colleges? Like, do all university football teams have some sort of hazing ritual that they perform on their freshmen? So they didn't really have a way to, like, be like, okay, I came from this school as a freshman. Like, nobody transfers from school to school as a freshman playing football. Like, there wasn't, there's not possible. So, they didn't have a way to be like at my past school, they didn't do this to freshmen or this is not something that other freshmen are experiencing. I think they kind of maybe just felt like it was an across the board thing. And a lot of it, they kind of realized that maybe the coaches were aware of the behavior, which is kind of what we talked about last week with the Shrek's list and the Shrek's clap, it being a list that was made. And if you, did poorly during practice, then it was the other athletes that were hazing you. It wasn't the coaches or the coaching staff. It was the other athletes, but it kind of was like an awkward thing where it seemed like the coaching staff was involved and they knew about it. Um, It's just, it is very interesting. Kind of like you said, Taryn, kind of the two different camps we're hearing of right now is like those student athletes last week who released a statement that was like, there has never been any hazing coach Fitzgerald didn't participate in any hazing. Like it's a safe environment. The football team, we're all really close and we, we feel safe as a football team. And then we have these students who are former players as early as like last year who are saying that's completely not the case. Yeah. And the other thing that I think, I missed at the initial, like when I was looking at all of this, Rashidi Wheeler died in 2001 and he died from exercise-induced asthma. And so for the punishment for messing up to be like, you have to run laps or whatever, it's like they didn't necessarily learn their lesson from that instance. I mean, it ended in a $16 million Uh, settlement with uh, Wheeler's mother. And I don't know, it's just, that's, that's interesting that, you know, these things are fairly directly linked, like Fitzgerald was around in 2001 when that happened. But that same individual, Lament said that he thinks that not firing Randy Walker, when Wheeler died, Walker, of course, obviously, later passed away, very tragically, is the root of a lot of chickens coming home to roost 20 years later, which I thought was a pretty strong statement from someone who, who played for the program. And so, yeah, I, I, I think we've said multiple times unacceptable and I guess we'll get more answers through litigation. There's a lot of parties in there to be settling. You know, I, I'm not sure that all of those individuals, including Morton Shapiro, who was the, the president and, uh, and Jim Phillips, who's now the ACC commissioner, are going to be willing to 
to settle this. So something we'll continue to track. Mike, do you have anything else? Well, the only thing in terms of settlement or, or it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to it's an insurance policy under Northwestern if they're all going to be under that same umbrella. So it wouldn't it, it's not necessarily going to be individualized to the, I mean, they're named defendants, but my guess is it's going to be defended by one policy. So if they, if they were to settle, they'd all settle together. And when you settle, you sign a release that says this settlement does not in any way admit to my any wrongdoing. So it's legalese, but I mean, if, if it does come to that, it's going to be the same thing. I mean, this was a different scenario, but if we're talking about mass tort here, you can kind of look to Deshaun Watson where he was abusing, you know, massage therapists. There was a significant number of them and they all kind of formed together and he was able to settle with them individually. So it, it could, it could look something like that, obviously t- different scenario, but something like that. Good point. And I didn't think about that. And, uh, Great job. Um, so we'll. Uh, oh, it's the personal injury attorney in me. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> thinking on that side. Yeah. I mean, you're in it. Let's transition here. Big news that came out on Thursday morning Ross Dellinger, obviously, Ross Dellinger, always Ross Dellinger from Yahoo Sports, the new senior college football reporter. It's a new title. Three U.S. senators released bipartisan draft of federal NIL legislation for college sports. And so uh, Corey Booker, who's a former Stanford tight end and now represents the state of New Jersey as a Democrat. Richard Blumenthal, who says he was in Vietnam, represents Connecticut as Democrat. And Jerry Moran, who uh, represents the state of Kansas as a Republican, have come together to create the College Athletes Protection and Compensation Act. And if there's one thing that we know about politicians, is that the titles that they give their bills are going to be a misnomer. So, Mike, do you want to tell us a little bit about what is in this proposed bill? Well, here, here's my little anecdote I was I said I was going to mention. It's, it's called the College Athletes Protection and Compensation Act of 2023. I think it should actually be called the NCAA Protection Act for Name, Image, and Likeness, Compensation of Athletes. <laughs> The first thing that's kind of eye-opening to me, something that we've talked about is, first and foremost, this does not address employment or the employment issue as it relates to NLRB or any of the complaints actively going on. I don't think it's on the mind, really, of Congress to step into that, but just an interesting little tidbit there. I'm going to give you some bullet points. I think I'm curious here, Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker, he's a former college athlete, played football. I think, you know, when he's involved and when he's very outspoken, he's talking about athlete advocacy. But, you know, every time we see these bills pop up, it's a lot of the NCAA's check check boxes, which is, you know, why I say it's the, it should be the NCAA protection. I didn't read anything if, if it relates to some sort of antitrust exemption. I know that is something that the NCAA talked about, but I don't think that's included here. I'll, I'll get you some bullet points here in terms of what schools can and can't do too, because we're talking about that as it directly relates to state laws that are passing that are permitting these schools to, in, you know, involve themselves in NIL deals with their student athletes and collectives. So this 
permits schools. So there's kind of two pieces of this. It permits schools to restrict an athlete from entering a deal that's contrary to the school's code of conduct for moral reasons. That's not far-fetched. That kind of is what schools are doing anyways right now. And it also prohibits the schools from representing athletes in NIL ventures or influencing an athlete's choice of representation. So there it cuts away their involvement in any of the NIL procedures. And it also permits schools to prohibit athletes from engaging in NIL ventures that are concurrent with college athletic events or competitions. So basically it's the same thing where it's, if, it, if it's going to cut against the school in any way, then it's going to allow the school to kind of prohibit that NIL action from going on. So two and four that you mentioned, those things already happen. You're not supposed to use it as inducement. You're not supposed to use it to retain. Yep. It's a gray area as to whether that happens. I mean, yep. you know, like John Ruiz was able to keep Isaiah Wong. He was able to get, Nigel Pack to go to Miami and they go to the final four. The fourth one, prohibiting them from engaging in NIL ventures that are concurrent with events or competition. That's already a thing. Like you can't miss practice. You can't miss games to do NIL activities. So those might as well just not be there. Even one, even one for restricting an athlete from entering a deal that's contrary with school's code of conduct or moral. I mean, I think that's kind of already there too. But for moral reasons, it reads a little bit differently than like, like right now you're not allowed to do, you're, you can't do deals that are like with the vice industry. So like alcohol, you can't do, uh, although there was a Florida international player that was able to do it because they were selling alcohol at the stadium. Right. So right. Um, we had them on. They yeah, exactly. And then I don't know, that one looks like it's been a enlarged a little bit. So, but then the third one, I think is, is basically the, the current state of affairs. I, I, I just think that there's a better way to do this in terms of allowing more resources to flow down to the student athletes, more education, better representation and, and more access. And I, I think that this is like cutting that off. To be fair, this is only a bullet point, right? I'm sure there's probably subsections here. You know, Ross was probably highlighting what the what the main aspect of this was. I'm sure. I mean, this is also just a draft and it's not proposed yet. So there's going to be a lot of, you know, debating this and, and, you know, you know, stretching this out. We also we were talking before. So there's a reporting aspect of this now where athletes must report NIL contracts within seven days of entering them. What's new, I think, too, is a recruit must disclose all current and expired NIL contracts with the schools before enrollment. And then, Holly, we were talking about this. Schools have to submit an annual report of their NIL deals, and that's going to include both average deal per athlete and the total deals. And I I think I don't think that's restrictive. I, I think that's actually that, that kind of leads towards an inducement to me. I'm thinking of, of of a recruiting aspect, right? If they have to publicly report all the money that, that their athletes are, are doing in NIL deals, that's almost an incentive for an athlete being like, hey, I have an opportunity to make a lot more money at USC than I do Alabama because they have more money that as on average than, than they did. So that's, a, that's an interesting aspect of it. Maybe that's just for transparency with the NCAA. I'm not too sure. I think that that's true. Uh, it does give a more transparent look into it because right now you can say like you know on average a basketball player at our school earned x dollars but because that's not like saying if you come here you could earn 
right x dollars and like that is also a gray area in the discussions i've had with compliance at different schools yeah and all really the only numbers we're seeing are the big deals right now we're seeing the huge deals that that certain athletes are are or team-wide deals or team-wide deals right correct correct some more bullet points here the act permits underclassmen to enter into a professional draft and retain their eligibility if two things happen they return to the school within seven days of the draft ending and they don't receive any sort of compensation from a sports league team or agent. Um, so that's a little different. It definitely gives a little bit more protection for, say, an athlete. Maybe he's a sophomore or junior who had a really standout year and he wants to test the waters of the draft. Maybe he gets drafted. Maybe he doesn't get drafted. But as long as he doesn't make any money and he comes back to the school within seven days, then they retain their eligibility. So that's, that's I think, encouraging for, for a player if they In- want to test the waters with professional as- uh, athletics. In theory, I think it's good, but it's almost like a double-edged sword here because one, I, it's awful for team construction purposes. Like now, yeah. I not only have Recruiting to wait is gonna be the terrible. deadline, I have to wait another month until the draft, and then I have to wait a week after that to know I'm going to get a player back. That seems like a nightmare for uh, for coaches and and GMs. The second part, as long as they don't receive compensation from a sports league team or agent. In a lot of instances, you're going to receive money from your agent ahead of a draft because you need resources while you're training to go through the draft process. You also need money to be able to travel, to see different teams. You need money to go to the combine. All of these things require money. I mean, you could get sponsored, but a lot of times an agent is the one that's going to be providing these things as an upfront marketing fee. That's a good point. And actually to to go off of that, what's going to happen is is probably it's going to be in the form of an NIL deal where you're going to have an agent that that negotiates an NIL deal with some sort of sponsor that is the one that's doing all of the paying for going to combine, going to whatever they need to do. So there's probably a way around it, but I think that's I think that's a good point. You hope, but you I hope. think it makes it more difficult. So last two pieces, I think, are the most important. The first one is not new. It's been in the proposed draft bills for federal NIL. And I think this is specifically coming from Cory Booker, especially given his outward approach on advocacy for players. It's encouraging, I think, to to say the very least, that they're going to have some sort of uh, medical bills uh, paid for. So schools making $20 million in athletic revenue have to cover athlete medical expenses for at least two years after their final competition. After. So that's that's really encouraging. Schools making at least $50 million will have to cover expenses for a four-year period following play. And schools making at least $50 million in revenue must contribute annually to a medical trust fund that's going to be set up to cover long-term injuries that are not covered by the school. So they're going to have a trust fund and those schools that are in that 50 million category has to have to contribute annually to that fund. So my only question is, what is that medical trust fund going to look like? Is that going to be conference-based? Is that going to be individually school-based? So the school has to set up their own medical trust fund. So it would be the Syracuse Athletes Medical Trust Fund. And then the school just has to contribute annually to the fund. I'm not sure. Again, I didn't really, there's no real specifics on that, but if it's on conference level, right, that could be, that could be massive. That could be a massive trust fund. But my guess is it's probably going to be individual school-based based upon the way they're, they're, they're kind of codifying this. Call me a cynic, Mike, but don't you know that no athletic departments 
make money that they're all poor. And so no one has to cover any expenses. Exactly. That was going to be my next thought. There's there's these thresholds here where, okay, like we're only going to make 45 million this year. So we only have to cover two years instead of four years of medical bills. So it's an interesting caveat maybe there that, and you're right, they're nonprofits. So, uh, you know, how can they get away with decreasing their annual revenue? We'll see. We'll see how that shakes out. It's an attempt to pay for, for medical coverage, but. Which is good. It's good. But that toes the line that an athlete is now an employee that you're paying, you're paying medical benefits to a non-employee or does that make them independent contractors? I have no idea, but you're paying medical, you're paying medical. Are they going to file a worker's compensation? Right. Yeah. Worker's comp. Like how, how is this going to shake out? But you're not addressing the elephant that is the employment status. And now you're covering medical bills. I don't know. I kind of wonder if that's intentional. Like if, if somehow they're realizing, okay, when there's an argument for student athletes to become employees, here are the main points that are brought up. So let's slowly try to address each of those main points. Maybe the first one they picked is healthcare for student athletes. And they're like, if we put this in an NIL bill, it's NIL. Maybe they'll stop complaining air quotes about it. And then we don't have to address it in the future for athletes. If I'm arguing in front of the NLRB for these complaints, like my first thing, if this passes is, hey, we already get paid medical benefits. Like we're already a, a step of the way there. We're completely controlled by the university. We, we can, they tell us when we have to eat, sleep, work, you know, do our homework, you know, work out, go to games. Like we're probably halfway there at that point, like the argument's being made for them. So maybe that is, maybe that is something that the, the Democrats are allowing to kind of get pushed through because they think that on the back end, they can get the employee status. I don't know. But that was my first thought. Corey, I saw that. Corey Booker playing a little 4D chess. Corey, Corey Booker is, is five steps ahead. The thing that I got out of the bill, most of all, is that we're going to get a little bit more bureaucracy. If there's anything that politicians love, it's creating more bureaucracy. What can you tell us about the the new NIL clearinghouse that's going to be created as part of this bill? So that was my part two. So, so one was the medical bills. Two is, is the interesting piece of it. I still go back to this. I mean, after this bill, why is the NCAA even necessary? What's the purpose of the NCAA? Because now the federal government clearly is saying that, well, the NCAA doesn't know how to regulate their own student body and their conferences. So we're going to create the College Athletes Corporation, the CAC. And what Taryn just said, it's going to be an NIL clearinghouse in charge of administering the bill, creating specific policy, and regulating and certifying NIL agents. So it's going to be a 15-member board that also has subpoena power, and a third of these 15 members, so five, at least five of them, need to be current athletes, or those who played in within the previous 10 years. So we have some athlete representation on there. Maybe, maybe Maddie can, maybe uh, Maddie Salomon can, can join them because she's, she's ripe for that. It's interesting because they're getting subpoena power and they're providing a space now where there's, like you said, there's, there's an agency that is doing what the NCAA should be doing if this law passed, but now they're creating a specific committee corporation they're calling it that's going to be regulating and administering and and creating their own policies they're going to have further policies that they're going to be creating 
So yeah, I think that's good, especially the athlete representation piece of it. As long as it's not like SAC where the NCAA is telling them what to say. Well, here's the other thing, right? One third is going to be current or former athletes of 10 years. Mm -hmm. That still leaves 10 other members. If they're doing voting or however they're going to pass these policies, they're still outnumbered. So that it's like, it's like, here have a cookie, but sit down and be quiet. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't really give enough oomph for a student athlete representative that can put can sway, you know, sway the pendulum. Look, it, it's very early in this process, like you said. There's going to be a number of different steps and checkpoints that have to be hit before we get to the point where this is even like up for debate, going through a committee, you know, and then before it even gets to the house. I know that there is interest in the house. Gus Bilarakis has uh, hosted that panel that we covered a few months ago where Jason Stahl was there as the uh, the lone voice of reason. So I think we'll probably see more of that. I don't know. Uh, Holly, do you have anything else on this? Yeah, I don't know if we kind of touched on it a little bit, but maybe going into depth about kind of looking into the future. One of the things that the draft said was after one year of the effective date, the Secretary of Health and Human Services would be required to establish a health, wellness, and safety standard in order to protect college athletes from like serious injury conditions, mistreatment, abuse, and death. And I read that the senators did make a statement that it wasn't necessarily targeted at Northwestern. It just happened to be a very timely thing that was included in this draft. And I think that that kind of goes to what we were saying about like the medical trust fund being important for student athletes, like having some sort of standard that is routinely maybe monitored to protect athletes from injury or like practice conditions and like the heat or just a lot of mistreatment and abuse that kind of seems to be we've been talking about recently. So I think that was kind of interesting. But again, that's the NCAA's job. They've been doing that for probably the last 20 years, especially like you said, given the heat and stuff like that. So they're limiting practice time, limiting doubles, limiting, you know, rest in between different practices and things like that. They've been doing that. Not a great job. Yeah. It's not being followed very well, but (laughs) there's, it's that part. It's, it's that it's not being followed very well, that they're not very good at enforcing rules and which is honestly why they found themselves becoming irrelevant. They threw their hands up about COVID. I said that that's like the beginning of the end for them. But we were talking about Rashidi Wheeler earlier, those drills where he died, those weren't even supposed to be happening and they weren't supposed to be filmed. And that was all happening under the observation of the coaching staff. So before we get to our what to watch for, I'm going to ask you each for a prediction. Holly, do we get a federal NIL bill before the 2024 presidential election? I'm going to say no. I don't think there will be a federal rule by then. Mike? There's zero chance. Zero (laughs) chance. I think that we'll get 10 more proposed drafts. (laughs) maybe yeah. 15 proposed drafts, but we're, I, I don't even know if one will touch the floor. And yeah. at least one third of them have to be by former college athletes. Yeah. Court Booker at least. Yeah. I see I'll a lot a- of, a lot more state bills being amended and kind of 
uh, I don't know, we may be saying it a little bit more recently, kind of making the NCAA a little bit obsolete or saying, hey, the NCAA cannot supersede our laws. I think we'll get a lot of that, but I'm suspicious about a federal federal bill. I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious. A little stitious. Yeah, I'll make it a clean sweep. I, I don't think we get it either. So, all right, let's end here. What to watch for? Holly, what do you have for us? My what to watch for this week is maybe bigger brands kind of going into the NIL space this week. Flauge and Angel Reese, both from the LSU women's basketball team, premiered in a Amazon commercial called Dorms, where they went through, um, as we know, Angel Reese is the Bayou Barbie. So she went through a bunch of Amazon packages of a lot of pink themed uh, dorm decorations, which is pretty cool. This is Amazon's first deal within the NIL space. So I kind of think it's setting the stage a little bit. It was a pretty big production. It was a really fun commercial. So if you haven't seen it, definitely look it up. But I kind of think this might be setting the stage for some new new ideas. Yeah, it was a very fun commercial. LSU, that's the center of the NIL universe. Mike, what do you have? Mattress Mac. Mattress Mac is back in the news. No, it is not about some bet on the Houston Astros to win the World Series, although I'm sure I, I think he already made one in the beginning of the year. So Mattress Mac, his name is Jim McInvale, I think is how you pronounce that. Billionaire mattress salesman out of Houston. If you've never heard of him, just look up some of the crazy articles about the amount of money that he bet and won on the Houston Astros. I think it was like $75 million he won on the Houston Astros to win the World Series. He had placed a bet, I think, Three and a half million riding on Houston to win to win the uh, the NCAA March Madness, and so now he is giving the Houston basketball team a one million dollar team wide NIL deal, and he I think he did this last year as well or, or earlier in the year he he also put money towards the Cougars. But there's a NIL collective. So it's through the NIL collective with Houston called Linking Cougs. It's the NIL campaign that kind of funds the, the, the Houston basketball team. So they're doing an NIL campaign that's bringing the team to Australia. And they're also bringing along a native of the Ivory Coast, a redshirt freshman, Cedric Lath, to participate with this as well. 14 athletes have signed contracts on this collective already. Pretty cool. And the total number now of NIL deals for Lincoln Cougs, the NIL has passed five million. So they're now five point one million dollars in deals, which is which is great. Mattress Mac always always jumping in the news for his uh, million dollar deals. What do you got, Taryn? Yeah, it's uh, not a, a fun one, but freshman wide receiver at Ohio State, Carnell Tate, who's from the Chicago area, uh, his mother was killed in a. Um, in a drive-by shooting uh, earlier this week, and that's just very tragic. And you know, you, you never know what these guys are going through. Like, obviously, is um, a big story, but um, a lot of these guys are, are dealing with tough things and and giving a ton of effort. and And it's a very demanding life, right? Especially if you're playing at a big time program like Ohio State. So, next time. At, and I would hope that nobody that listens to this is doing this, but next time that you're thinking about writing nasty stuff after a player makes a mistake in a game or something, or a recruit chooses a different school over yours, like just don't, man, don't be a loser. All right. That's, 
all I have. Thanks guys for a great episode, Holly. Uh, again, thanks for getting Sam on here. It's so cool to hear from her. If you uh, want to find us, obviously you can uh, at any time at Con Detrimental on social media. We've been posting a lot of reels on Instagram, which I uh, would love for you guys to go and, and look at and, and let us know what you think. Those are new. And if you want to find me, I'm at TK Sharma Law. Holly is at Slam Dunk Summers. And Mike is at Mike Son of Law. Appreciate your uh, you all listening as always. And uh, we'll see you next week on another episode. Contact Detrimental. <laughs>